0: Friends, would you stand? And we want to read at this time, read from Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, let's listen now to the Lord's Word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments, or persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated, friends? And we will go to the Lord and ask his help. Again, Father, what a blessing to have your word, to have this revelation of yourself, to know you, Father, and to know what you require of us. Would you, Lord, give us ears to hear today? Would you come and be present by your Spirit, that I and I pray that you would help, help us to stay awake, help us, Lord, to be able to process what's being said, even though our little legs and arms are wanting to be active. We pray, Lord, that you would move mightily upon us. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and in Lord, we acknowledge that this servant and these your people, we are all together weak would you by your grace bless us and our feebleness would you make lord your kingdom to grow we ask these things in jesus name amen the church is a beautiful bride even with all her flaws how great a love the lord has for her listen to what paul wrote in ephesians 5 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He would write earlier in Ephesians 1 saying this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. My friends, it is um, an understatement perhaps to say that the Lord agonized over us. He endured such suffering for his people in order that we would know what life is, both life now and life eternally. The apostle, as we started looking at last week, the apostle as a faithful minister ought to do he had entered into a great struggle as well on behalf of the church here he agonized like the Lord over the church in the Lycus Valley that is the churches of Colossae the churches of Laodicea and Aeropolis he contested for them he fought for them and as we've read in 2nd Timothy 2 and you read throughout the scriptures you're starting to get a picture and I mentioned last week what a convicting note it is to this minister And what a minister, a hireling, what does a hireling do? Things get hard and he goes, see ya, I didn't bargain for this. I thought I would stand up and everyone would sing my praises. I thought that my job was an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. The minister agonizes, a true minister, in the the wake of Christ and and after the examples of Paul or Timothy or, or Onesimus, Barnabas, these are people who entered into the struggle of the Lord. And we enter into those struggles in order that we might ensure that the Lord's people are cared for, so that the sheep, the Lord's people, the Lord's flock, move from point A to point B. They go from from, from that moment of conversion until they see Jesus Christ face to face and he welcomes them into heaven. That's what an under-shepherd is supposed to do. That's what we see in the Apostle Paul. He fought for them. He fought for them with prayer. He entered into contest uh, by those late nights where he has this inner turmoil and and struggle. He writes to them. He, He strives to keep them safe from the false teachers who were there in that area to pray upon them who were, uh, to pray upon those who were young in the faith. And, and we, we look at this right now and we say, this church was full of young believers. They were new to the faith. Everything sounds kind of right when you're new to the faith. You can't tell the difference between a John Calvin or a Joel Osteen when you're new to the faith because they all kind of sound the same. And this is the struggle. And this is what he's trying to guard against he doesn't want them to fall prey to these false teachers. He struggled over them, and we should too. We should struggle for one another, my friends. It is how we demonstrate the love of Christ when we seek the interests, the best for others specifically, to see them, to see one another built up in Jesus Christ, looking and ensuring as far as we can that people will find their, their happiness and strive for their holiness and no one else than Jesus Christ. That's our job towards one another. The stakes are high. Without the struggle, without the fight for one another, there is the very real risk of you being led astray from the Lord. Paul warns of it. In fact, these two verses we're looking at today, in verses 6 and 7, notice he says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And then... Look at verse 8, and what does he say? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. It's a big deal. He gives, and and this passage that we're looking at, 6 and 7, fall right between 4 and 8, as we hear this warning that is given to us. He did not want to see people led away. And we see this, uh, again I'm, I'm saying to you, it is a very real problem, the stakes are high. Um, in, in recent years, when I was going through seminary, there was this big push to march back to Rome. A man named Scott Hahn, I believe was his name, wrote a book, Home Sweet Rome, came out of the reform circles. Home sweet Rome, that seems to be the big thing. Go back to Rome, because, you know, they've got the early church fathers. Truth is, so do we. Right. In fact, as Lorraine Bettner said, the Protestant church is not the Johnny-come-lately. The Protestant church blew the dust off the scriptures and said, this is what the New Testament was teaching. The battle cry sola scriptura scripture as the final authority right that came out of the reformation why because they were contesting they were contesting that tradition had overgrown the church and that people were putting their hope and their confidence in the church and in its practices its traditions its indulgences its its seven sacraments rather than looking at Christ alone to save them it is a big deal. And even today, there are people who go back to Rome, who fall into superstitions. It might be a religious superstition. It might be an Eastern superstition. Charms and chakras, New Age philosophies, humanism, ideologies that, re, that impose upon or replace the gospel. It is a big deal, and it is happening. The Christians in this Lycus Valley... That Paul, to whom Paul writes, had a good beginning in the Lord, and the apostle does not want to see them come to tragedy. And that is what it is when somebody who once professed to belong to the Lord no longer walked with the Lord. Some of you know the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, one of those less glorious moments in the Lord's church. The man who wrote that was the son of a pastor. Became a pastor at a big Reformed church. That man today has deconstructed and says, "Yeah, I don't really believe the stuff of the Bible anymore." And it's a kind of a fad now among young and 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 Reformed people that, yeah, I'm, I've become intellectual and I've I've decided now that I know better than what the Bible says. And people are deconstructing and people are looking at these and they're very nice guys. They've all got their their you know, podcasts and they've got their web pages and they're rebranding things and they're just wonderful people. Except they're godless. And this is the people in the church, people who you thought would be rock solid and are not rock solid now. They've deconstructed and slowly they've been led astray from the Lord until one day they have nothing to do with the Lord at all. It's a problem. What Paul is writing about is a serious and very real problem. It was then, it is today. The the scriptures are always relevant to us, and they address the very issues that go on. One day you're sitting here, and look, we're singing the same hymns, we're singing out of the hymnals, we're sitting beside one another, we're speaking about the Lord, and one day one of our numbers says... I'm not interested anymore. I found something that's more intellectually stimulating, more persuasive, and so I'm going to go there now. And I've seen this. Guys who I thought were rock solid, who just, the pendulum swung, and they they swung into the church, and they kept swinging, and they swung right out of the church, right out the back door. What's to keep it from happening? Here, the apostle in order that the Christian may not lose his way exhorts him exhorts them to continue to walk in Christ according to the instruction they had already received. There's a lot in these two little verses to unpack. It's a beautiful passage. Again, he is writing to them in the midst of this danger of being deceived by persuasive arguments He's saying to them, This is how I want you to fight in order to stay put in Jesus Christ. Again, he's an apostle. He has already established the fact that he has the right and the obligation to speak as he does. And he begins in verse 6 with a command. Listen to what he says Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. That is, walk in the Lord. This word, therefore, again, everything he says here in verses 6 and 7 is based upon what he has already said, the struggling that he is engaged on their behalf, his praying that their hearts are strengthened and knit together in love, that they are helping each other reach or to attain the wealth of full assurance of understanding. That is, that they they would have this true knowledge of Jesus Christ in whom, he said, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is, again, as we pointed out last week, if you're looking for holiness, if you're looking to truly be happy, friends, do not look further or beyond or beside Jesus Christ. That is where we find our life. Our life is found in Jesus Christ. There is no no dearth of, of, of books out there telling us we need... Um, something other than Jesus Christ. You ever gone to a bookstore, a Barnes and Nobles or something, you go to the self-help section and they, they, they mix it in with the Bibles. It's like, these are completely opposite messages you're sending. And yet, many Christians don't even know the difference. They don't even see the difference. And many Christian authors, I remember Hank Hanegraaff once saying, I went to the Christian Booksellers Association or conference Wish I had brought my dump truck. And that said it all. Because so many of those books, which have Christian Bible verses stuck on them, and friends, don't be deceived. Satan quotes scripture too. Right? You quote scripture, you want to make sure you're quoting the context of that scripture. You're, You're applying it faithfully. Otherwise, we're guilty of violating the ninth commandment. You're misusing the truth of God for a nefarious ends, and that's what Satan did, and that's what sadly many many so-called Christian authors do, and it's not Christian at all because it points us away from Christ and it points us to some some gimmick or something by which we can attain holiness and happiness so Paul is basing these things on what he has said, and yet he says that there are those who will offer up persuasive arguments who are out to delude the unsuspecting. Therefore, how do we fight this? How do I fight to prevent this tragedy of my soul falling away or of someone else's soul falling away? How do I fight to keep from becoming prey for these false teachers? He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. He makes the statement of fact concerning the saints. They have received Christ Jesus the Lord. This word, received, is a packed word. Um, a packed word. They have received Christ Jesus. These are people who are Christians. They are followers of Christ. He had just said that he was rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ, but that they have received Christ Jesus the Lord. To receive means to receive with the mind. By oral tradition, by the narration of others, by the instruction of teachers. Here, commentators point out that the idea of tradition is introduced here. As Protestants, we are very much against tradition of any sort, except the traditions we like. Not all traditions are bad. We need to understand this. Unbiblical traditions are bad. Now I'm not talking about Christmas trees because if you want to have one in your home, you go ahead and have one. Please don't worship it. (laughs) Don't worship it. It can be a tradition. But in the church, we're not bringing in a Christmas tree. It's not a sacrament. It's not baptism. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's not prescribed for us in Scripture. So we don't do it. That's why we don't do it. We're not, you'll, you'll find a, a Christmas tree at the Strong's home. We won't worship it, nor will our children or grandchildren. Um, but, but we do these things. So we have these traditions. And here, this, this concept of tradition. So when he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, it is an idea of a biblical tradition. F.F. F. Bruce, one commentator, said this, The idea of tradition, together with the terminology used to express it, is common in Judaism, where it especially designates the handing down of the oral law and its interpretation from one generation to another. We read this in Deuteronomy 6 this morning. Someone is taught something, and then they turn around and they teach it. Paul, what did he say? These things. He said it in 2 Timothy uh, verses 1 and 2. These things that I've taught you and you've been witness, we want you to take these things and we want you to pass them on to others who will likewise be able to teach these things. It's how the truth of the gospel is spread. You've heard of the tradition of the elders. Moses received the Torah from Sinai, he delivers it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders of Israel, the elders of Israel to the prophets and so on generation by generation until the traditions were passed down to uh, rabbis Hillel and Shammai in uh, in, uh, about 10 B.C. Again, Bruce says this, this was the tradition of the elders which Jesus denounced because in practice it nullified certain basic principles of the divine law which it was intended to safeguard and apply, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the traditions of men. In verse 8, as I have already alluded to, Paul again refers to the traditions of men. Understand that what Paul is is in the midst of and what these Christians are in the midst of, there are conflicting traditions at work. There are the traditions of men that they would bring, oh, we've always done it this way, and this is the way you should do it too, because in this way you attain true holiness and true happiness, and then there's the tradition of Christ. There is the tradition of Christ, that which would come from the apostles and those that they had instructed like Epaphras. In other words, said Bruce, the Colossians have received Christ himself as their tradition. This is what's being taught here. The Colossians have received Christ himself as their tradition, and this should prove a sufficient safeguard against following the traditions of men. So here are these believers. They've received by instruction from teachers, from God to Paul, from Paul to Epaphras, from Epaphras to the believers in Colossae. They've received the truth. It has been transmitted to them. How do you keep from these false teachers? Friends, do you understand how important things like Sunday school are? Do you understand how important it is the Lord spoke of it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 what are parents supposed to do with their children as you rise up as you go forth when you sit down what are we doing we're talking to our children about the Lord we're forming a world view in them and teaching them that this is our father's world He is just. He is righteous. He is good. He is to be feared. He is to be loved. He is to be obeyed. He is to be served with all our heart. This is what we do with our children. This is the tradition that we pass on to our children. Not the traditions of men, but the traditions of God. The tradition of Christ. We pass this on. It is transmitted. What was the message that was passed down to these people? He says it. Christ Jesus the Lord. Their tradition was quite different from that of this world. Their tradition, the message they were given, was Christ Jesus the Lord. Let me ask you this. When you hear the traditions of men, when you hear, read the books or hear the advertisements or listen to the podcasts, do these people tell you, come back to Christ? Or do they tell you, try this, buy this, I'll reveal the secret if you send me my 1995 What are they telling you? How will you discern whether or not it's legit or not? Here's the first thing. How about if they never mention the Lord Jesus Christ, you just turn it off right there? That's a problem. The tradition, which is good, is the tradition, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we didn't bring a message to you of Jesus plus something or something beside Jesus. We didn't bring a message to you that if you try harder, be better, and flog yourself, suffer a little more, sacrifice a little more, or observe ceremonies and days, and give up meat that you'll be better and more acceptable to God. Was that the message we brought? That is not the message we brought. Is this what you have heard from this pulpit? This is not what you have heard from this pulpit. We preach to you, Christ Jesus, the Lord. The one who was the expected one. The one of whom the Lord's people anticipated throughout the Old Testament times. The one who was the anointed one. The one who was a descendant of David. The one who restores sight to the blind, makes the lame to walk, who has cleansed the lepers and made the deaf to hear, who has raised the dead and preached the gospel to the poor. This is the Christ that we hold up before you. This is the Christ that they held up before these believers who was born of a virgin, God in human flesh, whose name is Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. And my friends, he is the one who saves us and he is the one who is enough. What are the charlatans in this world telling us? What do the false religions say? They will never say it directly, I guarantee it. But they will add addendums. They will tell you what you must do in order to be really pleasing to God. He is Lord over all and is due the whole of our hearts and all of our lives. And so therefore, what do we do? How do we respond to this? We turn from our rebellious ways because the judge is coming and we look upon him in faith, and we are to be saved. That's the gospel. That's it. This is the message that they received. This was the tradition, the biblical tradition that was handed down to them. And it is in this that they should walk, says Paul. It is a command. They are exhorted to live lives conformed, to the union entered into with christ in other words the salvation we have the message that has been preached to them and to you is that christ is all you need the sinner who believes upon him shall be saved and he shall be and is declared to be righteous he is no longer under condemnation and there is no longer any payment for sin that can be made in fact You are viewed because of the work of Christ. You are viewed as complete and perfect in the eyes of God because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to me and it is credited to the sinner who looks to him in faith. There's nothing more to be done. There's nothing more that can be done. If Jesus didn't do it, you don't have a prayer. And no amount of money is going to redeem that he is enough. This is the tradition. This is what you hold to. This is how you live. And this is what you put your confidence, Jesus Christ, and not in anything else. That's the message he says you receive, now live in it. You have been united to Christ. So we die to sin, right? But we also uh, place no confidence in the flesh. We don't start by faith and fall prey to those who add to the gospel human traditions replace the gospel with man-centered ways of salvation, such as do this or don't do that. Bruce said, Let them therefore see to it that their way of thought and life conforms continually to this teaching. Secondly, he speaks of their condition. Now, the question comes, are they lacking something? Are you lacking something? You can imagine the false teachers coming up going, Hmm... I would have thought if you really were a good Christian, you would have finally mastered these desires of yours. You would no longer be struggling. Perhaps you need an addendum. Perhaps you need a boost. Perhaps you need something else. If you just tried this or performed that, you would be better. Listen to what he says about them. They are firmly rooted and being built up in him, that is, in Christ having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in the faith just as you were instructed. He states their spiritual condition. Um, now, understand, their behavior doesn't necessarily align with reality. We see this in the book of Corinthians. What does Paul refer to the Corinthians as? Saints. Saints. And what's the rest of the book about from verse 2 in chapter 1 to the end of chapter 16? (laughs) You're not so saintly. You're saints, but you're sure not behaving like saints. That's the Christian experience. It is. Some false teacher comes along questioning, placing doubts in the minds of the young believer, insinuating perhaps, you know, you haven't tried this or that thing. Perhaps this would help you in your holiness. seems to me you're just not as far along as you ought to be on your spiritual journey. And some of you recognize that. And, and it's, really, it's really quite freeing. You know what one of the most laborious things is keeping up appearances. I have to go to church. I have to show them what a good Christian I am. I have to go to church. I have to show them that my life is all in order. I'm not one to say that we need to go around throwing up on each other all of our problems, but understand, friends, every single one of us who's walked through this door or that door this morning, we come into this place and we've got problems. Can I get an amen? At least to show me you're awake still? You come in here, you've got problems, you have struggles. Some of you struggle with your children. Some of you struggle with your spouses. Some of you are struggling with health-related issues. Some of you just are angry every time you pass a gas station because the gas prices are so high. You're just angry, and you come in here, and you don't feel like you want to worship, and you don't feel like you're a good Christian. And the, matter of, the fact of the matter is you aren't a good Christian. You understand when I say you haven't arrived. You, you, you agree. You readily admit I still struggle. I'm not good enough. I struggle with self-pity. I struggle with lustful thoughts. I struggle with being self-centered. I struggle with anger. Pastor, I'm not seeing so much victory these days. Maybe, maybe the traditions of man will help deliver me. Maybe the key to living the Christian life is to go to the confessional, do a prayer walk, light some candles, maybe do so many Hail Marys or Our Father's maybe if I just lived a more rigorous life I could finally subdue my flesh how does it work for you I was a cheater in fourth grade I'm just admitting it I'm not proud of it I cheated in fourth grade I hated math true confession my apologies Ben I hated math and I had, and forgive me for my stereotypes but I had a Korean friend who was just excellent with math (laughs) and he did my math work for me until my teacher found out and I never did it again I just started to fail math Um, I determined as a 4th grader 10 years old I'm going to stop this this isn't worth it, I'm not going to cheat anymore we moved to a new location moved from Michigan to Ohio and my 5th grade and 6th grade years I did not cheat and then I slowly started to fall into this but I was so determined by my will power that I was going to conquer this desire to look successful I couldn't do it and that's the way we approach our sins in life I'm just going to wish it harder I'm just going to try harder and I'm going to subdue the flesh. And see, that's what the false teachers teach. They act as though you have some kind of power within you to raise the dead and to mortify the flesh. How does it work for you? You men who struggle with lustful thoughts, which is every man, how does it go when you say, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to think? And you think, right? How does it work? How does it work, ladies, when it's like, I don't want to say anything bad. I don't want to be a gossip. It comes burbling out of your mouth. How does it work for you? Not so well, does it? This is what the false teachers would be saying. These things don't help you. They don't deliver you. But notice what he says. He says to them, having been firmly rooted. Now look at this. This is sweet. This is what they are. They are firmly rooted by faith in Jesus Christ. It's passive. That is, the subject has been acted upon. And in this case, God has firmly rooted the Christian by grace through faith. You have been rooted into Jesus Christ. This idea of being firmly rooted means to be strengthened with roots, to render firm, to fix, to establish to cause a person or a thing to be thoroughly grounded. And in this instance, it is to be in communion with Christ. Understand, believer, dear Christian, understand what you are in Christ. Because of what He has done, you needn't think for one moment that you are lacking. I know, I know you feel like you're lacking because you still struggle with sin. The reality is you've been firmly grounded in Jesus Christ. As Paul to these believers in in the Lycus Valley, you have been firmly grounded. So when these false teachers come and say to you, it's not enough, you need more, you can trust that you have been firmly grounded in Jesus Christ and you're not lacking, so that when the winds of judgment blow, you will not be shaken and you will not be toppled. Do you understand that? Our confidence and our grounding is Jesus Christ. Despite what you feel at any given time, despite how you have blown it this week, despite your anxieties and all of your failings, and I guarantee you that if you're like me, there are many, but our grounding is in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Being firmly rooted in him as they had been taught their course said John Calvin is not at all wavering or liable to error when the world says and many in the church say Jesus Christ is not enough your resounding answer should be yes he is he is enough he is enough to make me right with God that's Romans chapter 3 he is he is the one who makes me right before a holy God. And I don't necessarily practice it, but that's the reality. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to be reminded of what Christ has done and to be empowered by his death. That brings us life. So they are, here, firmly rooted, yet they have not arrived, as we say. They have not yet reached perfection. When we initially come to Christ and receive the truth concerning who he is and what he has done for us, believing we are, again, firmly rooted. We won't, can't be declared more righteous than what we already are. Think about that. You're as righteous as you can ever be and need to be before a holy God based solely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Yet, the process of becoming what we are in Christ is a long and arduous thing as we learn of Christ more and more and have our faults and sins revealed to us and as we labor to repent and walk, that is, to live in Christ um, as we have already spoken about. So the Apostle says of them, having been firmly rooted and now, look at this, he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed. They are being built up. So they are Christians, they're firmly rooted in Jesus. However, they are being built up. Again, the meaning of this phrase built up is to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. In plain language, it is to give constant increase in Christian knowledge and in life conformed thereto. Like a building being put up, brick upon brick, the Christian slowly becomes what he is in Christ. We are transformed by the word through the instruction of the scriptures by the apostolic teachings not of human traditions. We are built up our faith in the subjective sense our personal faith is made steadfast and becomes strengthened. Do you understand why it's important you come to worship? and that you sit under the word, and if you have a Bible, you get to read it. That's a good thing, and that you come and be involved in each other's lives and talk to each other. This is what the Lord uses to grow us and to build us up. It means several things. First of all, again, remember that no one has yet arrived. Therefore, we are to be patient with ourselves Remember what it says in Philippians 1, six: He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So be patient with yourselves. Secondly, be patient with others. Be patient with your spouse. Be patient with your children. Be patient with each other in the church. Why? Because he who began a good work in them will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And third, don't fall prey to those who say to you that Jesus Christ isn't enough. And that you must do more to make yourself worthy of heaven. You are united to Christ. You are grounded in him and slowly being transformed, built up in him and becoming what you are. You are becoming what you are. And this, says Paul, is what happens. So how do you, how do you die to the flesh? What's the answer to the lustful thoughts? What's the answer to the gossip? What's the answer to all these things? You know what it is, friends? It's Jesus Christ. How? That's so frustrating to hear a preacher say that. And it's like, what does that even mean, Jesus Christ? It means the more we look at Jesus Christ, the more we get to know him, guess what happens? It's this wonderful billing that takes up. And little by little, this flesh, I'm dying to the flesh, and I'm living more and more to Christ, so that the older I get, the longer I'm in the Lord, what men think they can do with cheap tricks, Jesus Christ is doing naturally, and he's accomplishing it. All the gimmicks of the world cannot mortify the flesh. But Jesus Christ changes us. Because as we get to know him, what happens, like Isaiah? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He sees the glory of the Lord. He sees his sin. And he experiences the grace of God. You want to mortify the flesh? You look at Jesus Christ. And you start thinking. I, I was talking to somebody this week. They're constantly accused in their mind of all of their shortcomings, of all of their failings. And I was reminded as I was listening to them, I was reminded of a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said, when Satan accuses you of being a great sinner, you remind him that you have an even greater Savior. That's the way we mortify the flesh. We look at what Christ has done, and gratitude for what he has done changes us, and it drives us. But what Satan would have you say is church isn't efficient enough sitting under these long, boring sermons. They're not helping me. Friends, give it 60 or 70 years. It'll change you. It will because you see the Lord. That's what we do. That's the tradition we hold to. Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what we hold up. So here, finally then. What does he say? You are united to Christ, you are grounded in him, and slowly being transformed, built up in him, becoming what you are, and they are overflowing with gratitude. The result of being firmly rooted and being built up in Christ as we have received the truth of him, in that we overflow with gratitude, we overflow with thankfulness. My friends, stop and consider the Lord's abundant loving kindness to you. We started this service off today by reading from Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Listen to this again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons, you hear this, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. My friends, the Christian is the one who can take no credit for himself. That is categorically true. If you are a Christian, you have no room to boast, do you? You can take no credit. You didn't seek God out. Rather, he sought you out and saved you because he is kind. John says it, 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. As we are built up in him, the more clearly we see him, the better we see ourselves, the more we see what debtors to grace we are. And you understand a hymn like Amazing Grace. In other words, the Lord increases, And we decrease. And the thanksgiving to the Lord overflows in our lives and abounds in our lives. The false teachers, on the other hand, rob God of the praise that he is due, teaching men and women to place confidence in their flesh and to praise themselves for their good choices, their wise decisions, and their rigorous disciplines. How is it that we stay alive in Christ? we keep to the one we have come to know who loved us and gave his life for us period that's how we stay safe from vain philosophies let's pray we thank you father again for this day that you've given to us and again we thank you for your word and pray that the christ tradition would be that which we cling to and that we would not be moved from and that we would see and analyze all these other things that are thrown at us to try to uh, pull us aside, to get us to look somewhere else. We pray, Lord, that we would see them for what they are, empty and bankrupt and deceptive and godless. We pray that we would rejoice more and more in the Lord Jesus, that, Father, we would cling to these things, and as we are in the Word and as we are with each other, as we are under these means of grace, that we would be built up more and more that greater overflowing abundance of thanksgiving and gratitude would flow out of our lives uh, in praise of your name and of your great salvation. We pray, Lord, that you will help us and give us ears to hear. I ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.